where our, our children, who I'm sure are eagerly awaiting, can go to children's church. There they go. Look at, look at them run. Look at, and uh, the rest of you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. How come you guys don't run into the sanctuary, you know? How come you're not as excited to be in here as they are excited to leave? You know, what's, what's the deal? No, we are looking again this morning in the letter of Ephesians. We are continuing our journey through this beautiful letter by the Apostle Paul. We find ourselves this morning in part 10. We find ourselves, I believe now, in our third part of chapter 4. But again, this morning, chapter 4, it's a big text. We're not going to look at every single verse, but we'll look at the, the theme as a whole. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 4, reading verses 17 through 31, it's printed for you on page 9 in the bulletin, or there's also pew Bibles, I believe, in front of you, or if you have your own copy of God's Word. Again, we are in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 31. Hear this. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. I have been watching diligently, which I'm sure is no surprise to those of you who know me, I've been watching diligently the NFL playoffs, and as a Miami Dolphins fan, we are not in the playoffs, as you know, but I will be watching uh, Tom Brady this afternoon play for our other Florida team, or one of our other Florida teams, I guess there's three, right? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 
But I can say, as a Dolphins fan, I am very, very glad that Tom Brady is no longer in our division, right? He's no longer in the AFC East. I no longer have to deal with his just perpetual success right under our noses, but it still takes a little bit getting used to seeing him in a different uniform. Seeing him no longer in that Patriots blue, but in the Tampa Bay Buccaneer maroon or orange or silver or whatever it is they're wearing. It takes a lot to get used to seeing that switch happen, that new look happen. I remember how weird it was when Michael Jordan came back and didn't play for the Chicago Bulls, but he played for the Washington Wizards of all teams, and how weird that was to see him in that jersey or that uniform. If there's any Miami Heat fans here, we had Shaquille O'Neal, and he eventually went, I think, to the Phoenix Suns after he was in Miami, and that was weird to see someone you love in a new uniform or a new jersey. Max Scherzer, well-known pitcher, Washington Nationals, played for the Dodgers last year. Now he's in the New York Mets, if baseball ever gets their act together and and comes back. Now he plays for the Mets, and that's going to be weird to see and take some getting used to. Again, as a sports fan, and I know some of you aren't sports fans, I apologize, but you know, you've been here long enough to know how I think, so hopefully you can follow the illustration. But as a sports fan, you know, it takes some getting used to, again, knowing who is on your team and who isn't. The identity, you know, we, we, we get used to the personas, we have these memories even of what they have accomplished in that uniform, you know, in that stadium on behalf of their team. Which is why then when they switch teams, it's weird. It just takes some, you know, getting used to it. It takes some uh, time to now see them in that new light. To embrace and truly believe they're no longer with you, but they're now, you know, against you or they're playing for someone else. To embrace and truly believe that new identity. Take some time to Forget about the past of Tom Brady as a Patriot, and now think about the present as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, right? That new identity, that new jersey, not the state, but the, the, the article of clothing that he now wears, right? Well, in a weird and, and roundabout kind of way, this is at the heart of Paul's teaching here in this big section of Scripture. He writes to people namely the Ephesian church, who have spent and lived the vast majority of their life in paganism. Paganism. They are diverse people. They are non-Hebrews. They live in the city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And they are people whose lives and history and culture and experience and knowledge and priorities and environment, and values, and all of these things are shaped by pagan philosophy and pagan religion. They have no prior knowledge of the God of Israel. Again, they're non-Hebrew, no knowledge of his covenant or promises. There's no Jewish subculture originally present in a place like Ephesus, certainly no Christian subculture previously present in a place like Ephesus, so they're completely in the dark prior to the preaching of the apostle. Completely in the dark, completely entrenched, if you will, on the roster of Team Pagan. 
That is who they are. That is their identity, again, until they hear the gospel. Until they hear the gospel of Christ Jesus, and in that moment, they are converted. They're saved. They're given a whole new life. That jersey, again, of their former life, namely that of paganism, is taken off, and instead they're given a brand new garment, a brand new jersey, okay, namely the robes of Christ's righteousness. Again, they take off who they formerly were, and they put on now this new identity, this new jersey. I'm going to keep thinking of the state when I say that, you know. But this new, again, garment, namely the robes of Christ's righteousness. But the way this metaphor that I'm trying to you know, tease out here works is just like when, when someone is traded from one team to a next. You know, that superstar player is traded from one team to the next. And in that moment, it happens immediately, right? That transaction is immediate. Well, so too, so it is with our saving faith. It happens in that moment. The moment we hear the gospel and believe, we are converted, We are saved, we are traded, we are transferred, the scripture says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But just like that happens instantaneously, again, think of a player being traded, it takes time, though, to get used to the new identity. It takes time to get used to the new surroundings. Think of even the player himself, a new fan base, a new location, again, a new logo, a new mascot, a new playbook, a new way of doing things. The transaction or trade was instant, but the acclimation process to that new identity, to that new team, that new roster, that new spot maybe, new position on the team even, takes time. It takes time. And so it is here, Paul reminds us of our salvation and new identity in Christ. And depending, again, on your testimony, then this passage will maybe hit us differently. For example, maybe you were like the Ephesian convert back then. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Or maybe you did grow up in a Christian home, but you rejected it. Either way, you lived initially like the Ephesians. You lived far from God, far from his word, far from his people. You were immersed in the postures and the priorities of this world again until you too, like them, heard the gospel and you were traded. You were transferred to God's team, to God's kingdom. Well, again, if that's your testimony, then this passage here has direct application. Direct application, fresh instruction on, again, what we should value, what we should prioritize, what we should look to, and what we shouldn't look to. But as we know, in the church, there's also different testimonies. There are those who don't have that Ephesian testimony, but rather they did grow up in a Christian home, and they didn't reject it, but they embraced it. Maybe that's you. Grew up in a Christian home, grew up inside the church. You've known the faith from a young age. You're not perfect, but your history or your background is anything but pagan. It's very churched. And again, so your testimony maybe isn't that, you know, uh, instantaneous, darkness to light, glamorous testimony, but it's more of that slow progression, that slow understanding and coming to a saving knowledge of who Christ is for you 
personally. Well, if that's you, though, this passage, too, has great relevance. For, again, your personal past might not be shaped by paganism or by pagan ideals, but the present world in which you live, the present world in which I live, certainly is, is it not? We live in a world definitely shaped by pagan ideals, pagan priorities, And so again, this passage then still has great application for you. It has great application for all of us as we consider, again, what does it mean? What does it look like to be on Team Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom? What does it look like in practice? And again, I told you that this was going to happen in the letter. As Paul spent three chapters talking about God's grace, here in chapter 4, we are now seeing his pivot to this more practical and direct application of that grace into the, the cracks and crevices of our lives. So again, we have here the playbook, if you will. The playbook. And again, to keep going with that metaphor, notice how the playbook that Paul lays out for what it means to be on Team Jesus or, or on the gospel team, so to speak. Notice how the playbook is equally concerned with defense and offense. It's equally concerned with defense and offense. No matter the sport, right? There's always two sides to that coin. Two sides. What to pursue in the game Think of that as offense, right? What are you, what are you chasing after? What are, you, what are you aiming for? What are you pursuing? There's the offense. But at the same time, what are you protecting against? What are you, what are you protecting against? That's the defense. And you see it here in Paul's teaching. Notice in verses 17 through 20, it's primarily this call to defend or to protect against our former way of living or to defend or protect against the ways of the world. Notice verse 18. There's a hardness of heart that develops from worldly pursuits and priorities that we are to defend against. There's a callousness, look in verse 19, a callousness to God's will and law that we defend against. That the, the worldly life, the previous life for some of us, was a life dominated by unbridled appetite, sensuality, greedy desires. All of this, what, what happens here, Paul says, all of it leads to a darkening of our understanding. It leads to ignorance. It leads to alienation from God. Does that sound like some of the ways we used to live? Certainly. Certainly. Chasing after the things of the world, sensuality, greedy for every desire, directed only by our appetites. Does that sound like the way some of us used to live? It definitely does. It definitely does. Does that sound like the world we're surrounded by? Of course it does. Of course it does. Sensual, greedy, appetitive, unbridled appetites, darkened in our understanding, ignorant of God's will, alienated. That definitely sounds like the world in which we're surrounded by. And because what's happening here is that when we are transferred into the kingdom of light, when we are put on Team Jesus, we still reside here and now in the world. Paul has to remind us of what we should be defending against, what we should be protecting ourselves against. And we see that here in those verses. There's this great, great 
reformational phrase you've heard me say before. Luther uses it, Martin Luther in his writings. Simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously just and righteous. It's Latin. Simultaneously just and righteous. What does that mean? It means that we live in this world when we are a part of God's family. We have been declared righteous. That once and for all declaration of what God has done for us. But we are still in the flesh. We are still living in this broken and fallen world. And so though we have been made right, we have been justified, we are at the same time still sinful. Though we have been seated with Christ in the heavens, that's our actual and true identity, we still have our physical identity, our temporal identity here in this world, which is broken and full of all the things that Paul just mentioned. And so that's why Paul writes here that we must be on guard. On guard. We must be defensive, if you will, in that right sense of the word against those things that want to drag us down, bring us back to our former way of living. We must, in other words, never believe in the Christian life that we have arrived. But instead, we're vigilant. We're defensive, again, in that right sense of the word, against those things which want to corrupt our faith, corrupt our confession and profession of Christ. We live like those who are behind enemy lines. We live sober-minded. We live vigilant. We live understanding the truth of Peter elsewhere when he writes, the devil prowls like a roaring lion. Doing what? Seeking those whom he can devour. Seeking those whom we can devour. So what happens is that we, we, we realize that and we defend against our former way of living apart from God. We defend against that old nature which wants to creep back up in our lives and again drag us down. We defend against the priorities and the postures of the world. And we see that there in those verses. But Paul then also transitions, and in the playbook that he gives us, so to speak, again, as members of Team Jesus, also involves offense. It also involves offense, what we should pursue. And you see that in verses, really, 23 all the way to the end. Notice how the language is a bit more active there. It's a bit more uh, pursuant Again, if defense is protecting against something, offense is you know, chasing after something, it's goal-minded. But we also see that here in these verses. Look there at verse 23. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Renewed. You know, this speaks of an active learning of his will. Renewing being renewed in the spirit of our minds. There's this active learning, this active pursuing of God's will. I don't know if any of you have seen The Matrix or any of The Matrix. I guess there's a a fourth one out now, but if you've seen The Matrix series of movies, you know that the main character, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, he's, he's literally unplugged from The Matrix, which... We don't have time to explain that, okay? Um, But he's unplugged from the matrix, which is the false reality in which he lives, okay? It's a sci-fi movie, uh, this false reality in which he lives, and he has to literally relearn the truth. 
He has to relearn what it means to be human, what it means to live in the world outside of the matrix with true knowledge of what things actually are. He has to relearn everything, so to speak. And in a sense, that's us as Christians. We have been unplugged from the false gospels of this world, the false religions of this world, our previous way of understanding how things work, centered primarily on ourselves. And we now have to learn the truth of God as it's found in his word. And so things like the active study of scripture, prayer and the spiritual disciplines, worship, all these things that allow the Holy Spirit to to actively renew our thinking, to renew what we know to be true, to renew our priorities. That's, That's the language here that Paul is getting at in verse 23. It's active. But now look at verse 24 as well. If we defend against the old self, he says that we are to actively put on the new self. Put on the new self created, he said, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, this is going to look different for each of us depending on our background. Our strengths, our weaknesses, But through the Spirit, we know in our hearts what pleases God and what doesn't. We know deep down in our hearts what pleases him and what doesn't. And so it's in that moment that we reject the one, we reject the former. What doesn't please God, we put off. We put off the old self. The things we used to chase, the things we used to revolve our lives, we put it off. And that is is active, and that is constant, and that is all throughout the, the testimony. We never arrive right, as Christians, never arrive. Um, Tim Keller, great preacher and New York City redeemer, New York author, thinker, you know, Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It is perpetual, it is constant, it is daily. And so we put off the old self, whatever that is for you, whatever that was for you, we put on the new self Look at verse 25. Paul gets even more specific. Think of him now as like a head coach. He's getting into the details now, the X's and O's of the offense, the specific places in our lives where we should see transformation. We should see our identity on his team. Verse 25, he says that we should what? Put away falsehood and instead speak the truth with your neighbor. Put away falsehood. Maybe that's true for you personally. We used to lie to ourselves, right? When we're apart from God, we lie to ourselves. What we're doing is okay, our life's okay. That's a lie. We must speak the truth to ourselves through the gospel lens. But we also must be truth speakers in the world, right? We put away falsehood and we speak the truth of Scripture to a listening and watching world, but we do so in love. I mean, think about even today being Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's a great reminder of our call to speak the truth of God, but do it in love. We live in a world that embraces things like abortion. Is there healing and and grace if that's ever been a part of your life? Absolutely. 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 God can mend any brokenness, God can heal any wound. 
If abortion is part of your story, there's healing for that. There's grace for that. You must know that first and foremost. But at the same time, does God call us to speak the truth about issues like that? And, 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 and point out what is wrong about that? Point out how there is sanctity of life in the womb? Of course he does. We must speak that truth if we do it in love. But my point is, think about how that's a direct application from this idea that as a Christian, what do you do? You reject falsehood. You reject these false narratives the world wants to put before us. That there is no morality. There is no standard. What pleases you is all that matters. No, we reject things like that. We reject those ideas. And instead, we speak the truth about things. And again, I just mentioned the sanctity of life because of today, but that is a very, very hot, you know, pressing cultural issue where, again, we have opportunity as Christians to reject the falsehoods around those things and instead speak the truth with our neighbors. Again, think of that, that being as an offense, right? We're, we're, we're active, we're goal-minded in how we want to present the truth of God. Look in verse 26 and 27. He talks about this idea. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean for you? Well, maybe we were people who once held grudges. We once kept long accounts. We once were bitter and belligerent and judgmental. Well, again, here we're told there are times where we are certainly allowed to be angry. There are times in life where anger is warranted, but what do we do now? It says we don't let the sun go down on it. What does that mean? It means you keep short accounts. You keep short accounts of people. You were once someone, again, think of your former life, your old self. You were once someone who, who harbored bitterness, who harbored anger, who, who held grudges. Well, here now Paul says, you know what, you're still going to be angry at times in this earthly life, but don't sin in it. Don't dwell in it. Don't stew in it. Don't let, don't let the sun go down upon it, but instead be someone who keeps short accounts, who is transparent, who is honest, who is upfront, who deals with things and instead tries to be a peacemaker and shows the same forgiveness that God has shown to us. And then finally, in this little section, look at verse 28, 29. And notice how being a part of the gospel family, being a part of Team Jesus is allowing God to take your former weakness and perhaps actually now use them as an evangelistic strength. Do you see that? Look at verse 28, 29. What would happen if someone once known for stealing became generous and benevolent? Notice that, that transformation there. Let the thief no longer steal, but instead work that he might have something to give to those in need. What if, what would happen if someone known for stealing became generous and benevolent? Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such that is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. What if someone known for filthy, coarse talk, cynical talk, downgrading talk, discouraging talk all of a sudden became an encourager. What would that look like? Well, isn't that the story of how God's grace works? 
Didn't God take Saul, the persecutor, and make him Paul, the preacher? Didn't God take the zealousness of Saul, the zeal of Saul, but that misdirected zeal? He was a persecutor of God. He was a persecutor of the church. Didn't God take that misguided zeal of Saul, which we would call a weakness, but instead save him and convert him and take that weakness and make it a strength? Direct him now to its proper aims. Transform him and now use him for amazing things. That's how God works. He redeems our former failures and he now then instead gives us opportunity to serve, opportunity to bless others. So what is it for you? What is it for you? What were former ways of living that now actually maybe through your transformation give you an ability to relate to those who are struggling with the same things? What are some former things in your life that you have put away, but because you know the experience of those things, you know the, the darkness of those things, you know the loneliness of those things, you can now as a believer relate to those who struggle with the same things and can now instead be a conduit of God's grace, uh, an ambassador of hope and light. This is the playbook of God. This is the playbook for those who have been put on his team. And I'm ho I hope that you begin to see now how there's a, a role for each one of us to play. Again, they, these are active steps that we can be engaged in as followers of Christ. But lastly, lastly, I hope you see one final thing in this passage. One final thing. Because maybe you're sitting there this morning and it's starting to sound a bit overwhelming. This is a lot. <laughs> Man, Paul's asking a lot. He, he's, no stone is unturned here. This is a lot to do. Maybe being on the team of Jesus is more than I can handle. But I hope you see here also in this passage that in the moments where we fumble the ball, in the moments where we strike out, being on team Jesus is still thankfully primarily about Jesus and not you primarily about Jesus and not me. He is the one on whom the ultimate victory, the ultimate success of the team, still rides. And you see that in verses 30 and 32. Notice in 30, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So again, th this former way of living or this sliding back into former ways of life is how we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So now he kind of sums it up and says basically, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't do what displeases God. Don't do what you know, displeases the one who has called you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But here's the important part. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then look down at verse 32. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, okay, forgiving one another. And notice that last verse. As God in Christ forgave you. In other words, though we've been made part of the team, there are going to be times where we strike out, where we completely miss the mark here of what Paul 
wants from us. There's going to be times where we drop the ball. There's going to be times where we turn it over, where we commit a foul at the absolutely worst possible time. We're Chris Weber in the NCAA championships calling a timeout when he has no timeouts. Okay, we are that person more often than we like to believe. But in those moments, does God kick us off the team? In those moments, does God give us the boot, revoke the jersey that he gave us? No. No. And that's our hope. That's our hope. These final verses remind us that we have been sealed. You can't undo the seal of God. You have been sealed. You have been forgiven in Christ. That we are the recipients of the grace that Paul talked about for three chapters prior to this. Notice how these instructions for us, again, come after what he's told us God has already done. God has already called you and forgiven you and adopted you and chosen you and saved you and he sealed you. And so you cannot undo that seal. And so again, in those moments where we know we're on the team but we know we have dropped the ball, where do we look? Where do we look? We look to Christ. We look to Christ. We look to whose name is actually on the front of that jersey. And it's Christ's. You might know there's a few kind of sports franchises that don't put names on the back of jerseys because they want it to be more about the team. Some of the more famous ones are like the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox. Their home uniforms don't have names on the back. Their road jerseys do. Uh, but their home uniforms don't have names on the back. So it's more about what's on front. Think about Notre Dame football, Penn State football, similar, right? Well, again, I know it's silly, but think about that in the Christian life. When you falter, when you fumble, when you strike out, look at the front of that jersey. Your name is not on it. It's not your name. It's the name of Christ. You have been emblazoned. You have been stamped with his seal. We are a Christian we literally have his name put upon us. And so in our moments of weakness, in our moments of doubt, in our moments of failure, we don't look to ourselves, but we look to Christ. We look to the true champion. We look to the one who himself earned the victory for us. And it's in that moment that we then are reminded afresh that our identity is found in him our identity is based on his success and not ours, that we are forever a part of his team. Hear these verses as we close. Colossians 3, a similar passage. Paul writes, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Philippians 2, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase. That we are his. Our life has been hid with him. That he has made us his own. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. Thank you for our new identity in Christ. Thank you for the fact that we have been placed on your team, placed within your family, that we belong again, not because of our merits, but because of Christ. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that, to know that, that we would indeed uh, play and perform well as you have called us to, as you have instructed us to here in your word. But Lord, then would you also remind us that when we completely mess it up, when we run out of bounds, when we fall and fumble, when we strike out, that even then your love remains. Even then your faithfulness remains. Even then your goals and your kingdom advances. Because ultimately, you are the one on whom it all centers And so, God, again, thank you for even the privilege it is to be part of your team. Thank you for the privilege it is to even be a part of the process that you use to bring your message to the world, for it is a privilege. But, Lord, again, we thank you for the greatest of privileges, being known by you, having our life hid in Christ, being fully known but fully loved, even in our sin. Oh, God, we thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.